Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Squat Cobbler, episode 82. That's right, folks, 82 consecutive episodes of No Truth or Dare, and that's going to continue. I'm Kelly Tool at K-E-L-L-Y-T-H-U-L on Twitter. That'll continue at least until episode 100, where we break out Truth or Dare for the first time on Squat Cobbler. You're hearing it here first, folks. Or I'm not. an official pagan on everything. And this will probably be a good time since we're getting a little better at it, but we keep putting it at the end. Everybody should go to your, your page and subscribe, sir. Absolutely. Go to go to YouTube, search on Kelly Tool, T-H-U-L, subscribe there. Would love to have you join us there or hit us up on the blog, nurtureandsupport.net or iTunes or your podcasting mechanism of choice and do a subscribe there because we'd love to stay connected with you. We're continuing our prisoner exchange. I owe Mike an apology. I berated him pretty consistently on our last one that it was a 23 song long album and i felt that was a lot and i whined and complained about all the work i had to do and i said quadrophenia is next but it's it's you know it's not anywhere close to that well it's 17 songs so it's really not all that far away so my apologies and there, there is also extended versions of this album as well there are and and then a re-release that when it was made into a movie which we, we can talk a little bit about as we th- go through this and talk maybe a little maybe tangent off about both tommy and quadrophenia and their movie counterparts but yeah, there's lots of different versions out there. This is my favorite version. Another misrepresentation. I don't know if I did this on air or when Mike and I were talking afterwards. Mike had uh, recommended a Nine Inch Nails album that he's a big Nine Inch Nails fan, but he says not his favorite one, but it's one that was worth covering. And I said, yeah, that's kind of the same for me. Getting back, getting prepped for this. I was reminded that, no, actually, this is probably my favorite Who album <laughs> in, in terms of just of everything. We'll get, get to why that is the case. There are a lot of Who albums I like quite a bit, but there's some pretty special things about this one. So on that note, I think since we have 17 songs, you know, it almost seems like a vacation, doesn't it, Mike? <laughs> just 17. We'll, we'll go ahead and get rolling right away and start off first, of course, by talking about the album art. Your thoughts, sir? We'd kind of we were just talking about this off air. So just to kind of catch everybody up real quick, because it plays into this. I'm very familiar with the who in general. Obviously, I'm familiar with the vocalist of the band, because as anyone knows, he is one of the hardest working comic book movie stars. <laughs> OK, which is probably what he's best known for, I would assume. That's, that's, that's hard. Again, hard to tell. <laughs> Um, that's like half a joke. So before comic book movies, just for I, I think this is something to appeal to the squaddies, just weird who trivia that I can contribute. Kelly is obviously the more knowledgeable person of the who here. So the the vocalist of the who in the 90s before comic book movies are the big thing appeared in a number of comic book adaptations, TV shows and movies. I don't know if you knew that, sir. I did not. I'm familiar with a little bit of his his work, but not the comic book oriented stuff. A lot of comic book stuff. Um, he was in Tales in the Crypt. He was in that superman tv show that was on he was in witchblade he starred in the movie adaptation of vampirella that came out in the mid 90s and a couple other things too i think so he did a lot of comic book related acting before that was a popular thing and here we could have seen him in infinity war if he had just timed it better (laughs) right yeah it's a shame peak too early (laughs) but as i was telling kelly like going through especially like going through apple music which exists because of our last (laughs) last album that we discussed going through apple music preparing for this so i obviously i'm familiar with the who i wouldn't say i'm not a fan of theirs but i'm not like i've never followed the who i've never really deep dived in any albums of theirs but going through like the most popular songs on there i know a lot of who songs and whether it's just from hearing them like i feel like this is a band that's kind of you know i i grew up obviously 
radio was a much more prominent thing when I was growing up than it is now. Of course, you have satellite radio and everything now, but with streaming music, with podcasts and all that kind of stuff, that landscape has completely changed. The Who, of course, were a staple of traditional rock radio. Uh, a lot of people that I know listen to The Who. A lot of bands that I either listen to or know have covered Who songs. So I feel like I've been surrounded by The Who songs for a really long time. And certain album covers, particularly this one, which I think is in my in my estimation sort of an iconic album cover because I can see that image and instantly think of The Who. And it's something that I associate with them. But it's strange because this is probably the first time I've sat down and really properly listened to Who album from front to back. And it's weird because like there is a couple songs on on particularly in this album that I hadn't heard before. And yet I'm so familiar with this album cover and I'm so, so familiar overall with just the Who's music being around that I feel like I know the band better than I really do. It's a weird sort of spot to be in. And this album cover is one of those elements of it. Like I've seen this album cover so many times that I, I feel like I know this album better than I actually did. The cover, it is, it's an iconic cover, black and white, a gentleman on a Vespa motorcycle and uh, in kind of traditional or mod garb. Let's uh, give you a little bit of background because I'm going to guess, and this is actually probably, you know, my part's opinion, I said, this is my favorite Who album. Some of the best music they've ever created is on this. Definitely some of the best drumming Keith Moon has done is on this album. But the storyline, and it's a better storyline, uh, still a little confusing, still a lot confusing, but likely a, a more cohesive storyline than Tommy. But Tommy was a lot more accessible because it was about pinball and a deaf, deaf and blind kid and other kinds of things like that, that people could wrap, wrap their heads around it for the American audience in particular could kind of pretty easily gravitate to. This is steeped in England and aspects there. So during uh, this time, the Who started off as, um, I believe the order was they were the high numbers, and then the detours, and then the Who. And I think they cycled back to the detours briefly, but eventually stuck with the Who. But they were a mod band. So none of them were really mods, but they there was one of the two kind of main groups. There were the mods and the rockers, and the rockers tended to wear leather jackets called teddy boys sometimes as well. And so they're kind of the, the biker guys. And then the mods chose to dress very stylishly, and they also rode bikes, but they were these Vespas, which are not quite as intimidating a vehicle as a Harley Davidson. And uh, that's one of those that's featured on the uh, the cover there with the four mirrors with the faces of the, the band members in there. And so this whole story is kind of them going, going back to their, their roots a little bit and talking about Jimmy, the protagonist of this uh, album, who is a mod or wants to be a mod and fit in with the mods and some of the conflicts between there. So... If you have that background, this thing hangs together a little bit better. It's a little easier to follow. If if you don't, there's just parts of it that just probably aren't going to land as great with an American audience. And I'm going to guess that's why this isn't hailed as much. But musically, it's I know it's an, it's an incredible it's an incredible work in my opinion. So I think we're just go ahead and get rolling into it. And it starts off. So a couple other interesting things about this one. I believe this is the only Who album that I know of that features sound effects, atmospheric spheric stuff i don't recall any other one so this is the only appearance of that in there we get that right off the bat with i and the c c plays into this a lot because a lot of the places where the mods and rockers would convene were on the various brighton beach and those types of things and and by the sea so it starts off with i and the c you're getting the, the motifs from what you're going to learn sooner the different quadrophenia deals with a split personality four ways the four members of the who we'll talk about that as we we go forward here but you you get all the themes, uh, um, is it me, bellboy, helpless dancer, it's all there. 
So you get all of the, and Love Rain Over Me, which is Pete's theme. So you get little vocal snippets of that, hints of the music, not much here. We're going to get more on that in a second. But it just kind of sets the tone up. This was really intended to be, Tommy was called a rock opera. This is definitely intended to be more of a, an opera or musical kind of structure because you get lots of reprises of things and these songs kind of snake in and out of each other and get referenced quite a bit uh, across the entire album. So it's a short little intro, atmospheric, a little bit of the vocals. You're getting things are getting set up. So obviously, I'm a big fan of atmosphere and music. This is something again. I've heard a lot of Who stuff, but I'm also not as knowledgeable as I thought I was going into it. So, so it was a weird thing because, as you mentioned, this is the only time you're familiar with of them doing this sort of thing. As soon as I heard this, I really liked it. But there was a part of me who was like, "Did they do stuff like this on other records? <laughs> like, is this was I just not aware that there was a more ambient or atmospheric sort of element to some of their records so so it kind of threw me but in a positive way because obviously i really like atmosphere to music you mentioned something that i guess you could mention at any point of this album which is you know it does all connect and it kind of like you know bleeds together a little bit and there are sort of reprises of different things and this is we just did back to back you know big epic double albums like this you could say the same thing about the nine inch nails thing i you know musically obviously there's no real crossover there but it is interesting that when you have you know big epic records like this that are in time and in genre so far apart from each other but you can see like structural connectivity in these big operatic albums that are decades apart and seemingly so far apart musically yeah i I thought as we were going through the nine inch nails album i kept going wow there's there are some similar similarities and approach in that particularly the intertwining of your hearing stuff you heard at the beginning of the album and it comes back at the end and then in the middle and it's slightly modified and uh it's pretty pretty interesting of those parallels so then things probably started to sound a little more familiar to you mike because then we roll into the real me uh which is 110 percent true blue who the driving guitars roger daltrey screaming it out amazing bass going on powerful drumming a horn section which is not atypical here and there on Who's stuff, but this is a really big driving thing, and you get this kind of atmospheric start, and then this roars into the the real me and gives you kind of a punch and says, oh yeah, this is a Who album. I had mentioned there, there's a lot of Who songs that I, I do know that I am familiar with, but going through the album track list things, I realized that I wasn't familiar with entire albums. And this, this is very much one of those cases where there's a bunch of songs on here I'm very familiar with, a bunch of stuff I'd never heard before, like I Am The Sea, that really kind of threw me off. So it was an interesting listen getting through it obviously this is a song that is i would assume really well known and really uh indicative of the band's overall sound it is a song i'm very familiar with i've heard many times it's a song i really enjoy so it we're at an interesting point here because i was completely thrown by amnesty but in a positive way i was like okay this is gonna be interesting this is going in some unexpected directions and then that was immediately followed up with a song that i'm very familiar with and really enjoy so it was a cool sort of dynamic at this point in this juncture. And I'm like, I'm really going to enjoy this album. Yeah. And um, the the turns keep coming <laughs> because we, <laughs> we get atmospheric. The real me comes out and I go, OK, who album? I get it. And then we flip into Quadrophenia, which you knows the who when you hear the drumming and the bass and the guitar stuff that's going on in it. But this is an instrumental. It's a six minute long instrumental. It is big time pulling in all the different themes that you're going to hear throughout the rest of the album 
in some very creative ways. It's a composition. It's a pretty powerful piece of music. And I, I just magic to listen to with headphones on and just kind of really immerse in it. It's to me a very, just a very powerful, powerful song. And it's, it's an instrumental and just it's weaving all the kind of themes in there and different kind of pacing to it, but just a really, really powerful instrumental. Yeah, I totally agree. It was, again, another turn. We're only three tracks in, and I feel like these are three very different sort of approaches, and yet they don't sound... It doesn't sound like you put a playlist on random kind of thing. Like, it's still... There is connective tissue here, but at the same time, these are three really different approaches. You're getting a lot of orchestration on here that by the third song, we haven't really heard. You know, there's a little... Like you said, there's a little bit of a horn section on The Real Me, but nothing like the orchestration that's on here. It's a lot more overpowering on this. I feel like you could say this, and you've already said it, and I feel like you could say this about almost any song on here, but this is really where this particular note kicks in for me is that the drumming on this is just incredible. Yeah. And you can pretty much say it about every song. Cause it's just, you, Absolutely. You're taking, I mean, you're, you're taking it all in and it's lots of really cool stuff going on. And then if you just take a second and go, let me kind of tune in on the drums. You're like, Holy crap. <laughs> There's amazing stuff going on here. Yeah. I mean, I obviously I don't think a lot needs to be said about him as a drummer, but you know, if you really want to hear just some incredible drumming and why he's such a celebrated drummer, this is a great place to start. And like Kelly said, just focus in on the drums. There's a lot going on on this track, but if you focus on the drums, you can really see why he's such a celebrated drummer. Yeah, it's it really, and you know, that's the very interesting thing about the who is that each one of them is well above average in a certain kind of capability. So Keith Moon and, you know, a pretty amazing drummer, John Entwistle, a truly unique and, and amazing bass player who kind of had to modify his style since Pete tended to want to play rhythm and not lead so much. So you almost get some lead bass guitar uh, in some things. And now have John Entwistle developed that Pete Townsend, of course, he's not Stevie Vai. He's not, he's not a, a virtuoso guitarist and like a Frank Zappa type of thing in, in that respect. But he he can sure play that rhythm guitar and can write a write a pretty good song or two. So you get that kind of very identifiable Pete and also a pretty cool singer. And then Roger Daltrey, this marriage of Pete Townsend writing to Roger Daltrey singing oftentimes creates something that's really, really powerful. It happens a lot on this album where it just really, really clicks and Roger takes takes stuff to it. And when you get a couple cases, and we'll talk about them here actually in the next track, where it's a lot of Roger, but then you get a little bit of Pete counterpoint in the vocals, and that's another very typical Who thing that makes it sound really cool. So let's just jump right into that next one, which is the last track on the first side of this double album, which is Cut My Hair. And so we've not had a lot of character development so far. We've had some <laughs> atmospheric. We did get, okay, so this guy's trying to decide what's the real me. And then we got a really great instrumental. So not a lot. We have this, The plot's not been moved along. Now we begin that in earnest. And this is a piece of kind of further reinforcing Jimmy trying to fit in. Does he need to cut his hair? What kind of fashions does he need to wear? And kind of struggling to kind of fit into the mod culture. And it uh, Pete actually leads this off singing it. Roger comes in on some different different points as well. Tails in with some more atmospheric stuff at the very end where there's a radio segment talking about these kind of battles that are occurring between the mods and the rockers. So I'm going to get a Beach Boys reference in here. There you go. In the, in the verses a little bit, there's a little bit of a Beach Boys vibe to me. Did you, do you get that at all? I can see it now that you mentioned it. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have called it out before, but I can, I, I will not argue against it. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> I mean, I'm bound to usually make a Beach Boys reference anyway, 
but I do feel like I'm not stretching here. Um, it's not the the harmonies that people typically think of with the Beach Boys, but if you think of the delivery of their the more standard delivery of their verses, it's very similar to the way the verses are delivered here. A, a similar type of vocal pattern. You touched on something that I think we got into with a little bit of depth with the Alice records, particularly with Lace and Whiskey, I think is where we kind of hit on this. When you're listening to something, and obviously like this is a rock opera, this is, a, this is all thematically connected. How much story do you need to enjoy an album like this? Or, or do you prefer that it's they're sort of just uh, loosely connected or thematically linked? Or do you need a direct story? And I know we've touched on this before, but for the squatties who, who maybe haven't checked that out yet and shame on you, go back and listen to all of our Alice reviews. But what do you as a listener look for when you're listening to something that's more conceptual like this? So if the music and the lyrical artistry and et cetera is strong, it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm on chapter two and now chapter three and here's how things are advancing. So I can I can certainly live with that kind of, there's a theme running through, there's connectivity. I can certainly enjoy that as a type of thing. I'm, I'm not requi- I don't require a very crisp, clear storyline to kind of know how things go to enjoy it, but it needs to kind of hang in there that if it is just, I'm, I'm in a theme area, it needs to kind of stay w- within that and not kind of stray off, stray off too much. So it's not super important to me that there's a crisp storyline. I'm pretty fine with uh, just loosely coupled uh, telling the story. I'm kind of in the same place. I don't need a direct chapter by chapter story, although that can work. It sometimes that can, I I've heard it where that's too literal sometimes. And can be a little heavy handed and is actually detracting from it to where you can't really take the songs as their own entities, which is definitely not the case here. But then there's been times even when it is literal and heavy handed like that, where I felt like it's worked really well. Uh, Cradle of Filth did an album like that, that I, I thought hung together really nicely. And it was a very literal beginning, middle and end story that continued with each song, but you could still listen to the songs as their own entities. I think that's a hard balance. What I do need though, and I think the reason we had originally delved into this with the Alice reviews for Lace and Whiskey is Lace and Whiskey is sort of sold <laughs> as a concept record. But then once you get into the record, the concept largely only exists on the artwork. Yeah, I'd agree completely. Whereas uh, Goes to Hell which you can, I know you have a few few quibbles with maybe some of the production and Broadway-esque nature of it, but at least goes to hell. We're all, we stay pretty hell-oriented through most of it in a, in a good way. Lace right. and Whiskey, not so much. Yeah, Lace and Whiskey, you know, your promise sort of this film noir-esque story that really only exists in the packaging, not so much at all in the actual material. You know, at this point, like you said, this song gives us, you know, a little more narrative direction with it but i'm also not mad at this point like i I don't feel like you know i can hear the connectivity between these songs so they didn't need to do this in my opinion not that i mind it in any way but i'm still on board even if there wasn't more narrative direction at this point and the narration continues on now so jimmy whose heroes are bands like the who uh gets to actually cross paths with a band that seems very much like the who in the next song uh the punk and the godfather which an American releases is the punk meets the Godfather to make sure we're super clear that this is Jimmy kind of connecting with somebody. I think just to help us Americans along a little bit. This is another, uh, yep. We can use all the help we can get. Uh, it's another Daltrey um, Townsend combination uh, of Rogers ripping through. This is a this is another song that kind of roars in like the real me. There's more of a soft break in the in the middle where uh, Pete takes the vocal duties. It's a great counterpoint to it. Makes it all the better of a song. 
and um and just a really really strong song so i don't know if this was a single or anything like that but this was another track that i was very familiar with i've heard this a number of times i didn't instantly recognize it from the title just scanning through the titles but as soon as it started it was a song that i was very familiar with are, are, do you know offhand if this was a single 515 and the punk meets the godfather were both signals i'm pretty sure and the okay. real me i think in the real me as well the real me is the one i was most familiar with of everything on the album but this is a song that i've heard a number of times going into it really enjoyed it not a whole lot to add to what you said to it other than i was curious if it was a single because it's something that while i didn't recognize the title i recognized the song almost right away yeah it's one that the title the this is one where the title's not referenced at all in the song so it's like oh that's what it's called <laughs> uh and i was just testing all you big who fans out there that when i said oh cut my hair was the last uh track on the first side it actually the punk the punk and the godfather is the last track on side one i was just testing you making sure you're paying attention so it wasn't a mistake couldn't have been why a mistake. like that yeah just just kind of kind of tricky but now we move to side two uh this is a pete townsend only uh in terms of vocaling it's called i'm one this gets uh this is a much softer introspective kind of kind of um piece where it's just kind of jimmy musing a little bit pete tends to take most of the jimmy point of view vocals yeah it kind of it bounces back and forth a little bit but it is it's it's not your typical heavy-handed who kind of thing it's a very nice song from there i do like i don't really know why i like this lyric but it's still possibly one of my uh, favorites where he talks about i've got a gibson without a case but i can't get that even tanned look on my face i don't really know what the point of that is but i love it i think it's really cool uh so it's a good song my note on this was country who this this has a little bit of a country vibe to me and maybe maybe as more of a who fan you would disagree with that but i, I can hear just a little country influence there am i crazy I'm not crazy. Pastoral might be another way to put it because the other thing I had in my notes I forgot to mention was, so this followed Tommy. And I think this is a more cohesive album in terms of overall sound than Tommy was. Tommy's a great album, but I think it's more cohesive. And it is unique unto itself that there's not too many other, you hear the who loud and clear through different parts of it, but Quadrophenia is just kind of a, a kind of special execution for them. But I'm one starts to hint at and get some of the feels too of what we're going to get in who's next, which comes a couple albums later. And it is that whether it's country or pastoral, those types of things, you get a little hint of that, but it's absolutely there. Cause I, I picked up on it too and kind of wrote a note because it's, it doesn't, it doesn't stick out in a bad way, but it's, you, you get kind of this tone in it here that you're really not getting through the rest of the album. Yeah. No, the, don't get me wrong. This isn't like a twangy <laughs> Nashville no. pop country type thing. There, there's just a little bit of that, that rural feel to it, that older, more classic country would have to it. I would agree completely. And then we move into the dirty jobs and this is a little bit of Jimmy, not it's all about kind of people having to do jobs that aren't so great. Jimmy's having to do some jobs that aren't so great and working class kind of mojo to it as well. This is a, not a rock song. I wouldn't say, uh, it's a it's a it's a well composed song and it and the on the recording of it one of the things they they did was the kind of as as Roger kind of spits out each line it, it jumps speaker to speaker very very noticeably and so if you've got headphones on or you're listening to it in a good stereo system you'll get this kind of line one comes from the left line two clearly comes from the right and it goes back and forth like that which was kind of intriguing very pronounced not subtle subtle at all but it um it goes through with, it's a very kind of intriguing and interesting song. We do some interesting things on how they, how they mixed it. And then it kind of ends off with a little more of this atmospheric stuff. And you get some additional sort of orchestral elements yeah, in this. Absolutely. 
But to me, it played out a little bit differently. So whereas the orchestral elements on side one sounded like a little more dramatic, a little more epic, almost movie score ish. This had and this might I might not be able to articulate this right, but almost a folkish Renaissance fair kind of feel to it. Does that make sense? I get where you're going. Folk, I'll go. I don't know about Renaissance Fair entirely, but I'll go folk for sure. I don't and mean that in a bad way. Just no, that's what no, I thought. yeah, no. It's orchestra. I think I think those are good notes to hit on that. That this is definitely the more orchestral. You know, has much more of an orchestra kind of feel to it, orchestration to it. And I give, I would give that what you would call. It, I'll go. I guess Renaissance Fair as good as any. It then moves into Rogers theme, um, which is Helpless Dancer. This is mostly about trying to trying to fit in, trying to keep on. It isn't really working out really well. And it kind of ends with the, and Roger sings the heck out of this and kind of ends at the very end with you stop dancing. Cause it's kind of like all these different things that the lyrics in this are really powerful. You get a chance to kind of read through them. They're really impressive. And uh, then what's kind of cool at the very tail end of this, and this happens in a couple other places. Again, I think this is the only time the who does a lot of this atmospheric stuff. The kids are all right. Kind of at the tail end of the song kind of comes in as well. So I really like the play between the piano and the acoustic guitar in the beginning. Yeah, and it's almost still got hints of or, uh, orchestral on this one as well. Absolutely. I w- the lyrics are definitely very striking. I could almost see, though, some of them being seen as problematic now. Uh, and then we've talked about this before on uh, a couple other albums where there were things that at the time, uh, I think the Kinks um, Misfits was was an example of that, where at the time, it didn't land particularly odd, but you listen to it now and you're like, ah, I don't know. I think probably I'd phrase that a little differently. Yeah. And it, I don't think it's the intention of the song no. so much, but the way that it would be perceived, I think today. Yeah. I think there's been a big, a big shift on that. And that's, yeah, this is absolutely, that's kind of present in a couple portions of these lyrics. I mean, I was trying not to be offended by something that Kelly recommended. Just wait, just you wait. You're going to, you're going to, I have a, an early birthday present for you coming up. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I can see where they were going with the lyrics and And again, I don't think it's the intent of the lyrics. So if you do go back and listen to this, you know, if you are easily offended right away, like just actually listen to the lyrics, actually follow the song. Don't get too thrown when he does work in, I believe it was gash wagon. <laughs> I believe you may want to re-listen to it. Uh, that is not present. Are you sure? That's what I have in my notes. Yeah. Oh, shoot. So anyway, we'll move right ahead to <laughs> Is It In My Head? Um, I See A Man Without A Problem is where it starts off. Another really strong vocal delivery by Roger on this. This is actually John's theme. Pardon me. I take that back. It's not John's theme, but John in Twistle does some vocal. This is actually one of the, this is the only track where John does some some backing. John doesn't even sing on his <laughs> on uh, on his theme, but on this one he does. So could you get that kind of higher uh, register type of thing that John and Twistle can do so well? It's pretty cool. So it's a good song. You get a little bit of Roger and John, which you don't really get very often in a Who song, but it, it is a, a good song. It is also probably on the softer side, but a good song. So this song, and it doesn't sound like it, but it made me think of the song Am I Going Insane from Black Sabbath, which I realized Again, the two songs don't really sound alike. It just kind of put me in the, a similar sonic frame, I guess, between the two. And it made me realize that that Black Sabbath song sounds more like a Who song than a Black Sabbath song. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Then we move to the, and I'm trying to keep sure I stay on track on some of the stuff. The last track on the second side, and this confused me pretty significantly uh, when I listened to it the, the first time. So it's I've had enough and it's had Jimmy now. He's had some junky jobs he's not really sure he feels kind of helpless 
he's still going through some of this angst and he's basically decided he's had enough and again the song is kind of about that and there's a litany of all the things he's uh, had it had enough of so it's kind of pretty powerful there it's a combination of roger and pete again on vocals which is very very cool and then at the tail end of this song there's kind of a typical roger daltrey power scream and this crash and i'm like so Jimmy dies at the end of side one. <laughs> you know, how does how does this story work out? Because it didn't sound good. It sounded like something really bad happened. Upon further review, I found out that he he has had enough. He's on his mod Vespa and he crashes. He's just mad and smashes up his his um his symbol of being a cool mod, the Vespa. But it's just it's the bike that will no longer be with us the rest of the show. <laughs> but but Jimmy's good. So you can't actually kill yourself in a Vespa accident is what you're saying? I, I don't think you could pick up enough speed with a Vespa. <laughs> you know, I think you could get a bruise. <laughs> now, I don't know how big the Vespa crowd is in terms of squad. He's out there. So hopefully we don't start an insurrection here. <laughs> Huge number of Vespa enthusiasts. Yeah. Like, like I'm going to get concerned if a Vespa owner's mad at me. <laughs> so. Better watch out, Kelly. They're going to come try and run you down the Vespa. You brought like, this oh. entirely upon yourself. And I'll be like, hey, did you did you just run into me? <laughs> hey, what's up? In so, the interest of of winning those people back, I'm going to say this is my favorite song. I was horrified when the Vespa was crashed. <laughs> I am pro Vespa all the way. Unlike Kelly, keep that in mind. So this did make me want to ask. So you already kind of touched on, you know, our our protagonist here has had a number of jobs that you know didn't live up to his expectations of life, and he's not going where he wants to go yet. So. What is a strange job that you've had, Kelly? I don't know if I've had, I can't, I can't wait for your answer, (laughs) but um, (laughs) I don't know if I've ever had a strange job. I've had a really boring job, which was working in a uh, plastic and and metal fitting manufacturer where my main job was to package little pieces of pipe or screw a hex nut onto something and package it and count them and, and tag it. So that was fascinating work but probably the strange and i think it probably does fall in the category of strange is i got to to work in a lumber yard for a summer uh where we were basically loading large pieces of of oak and pine onto large carts that would then roll into the drying kiln to dry the wood and i did that with an amish gentleman who was probably in his 50s who was developmentally impaired and it was it was a very nice guy but you know i I brought my radio, which is not a big thing for the for the Amish. <laughs> They're not big fans of things like that. But he, he let me play it. Uh, but I kind of freaked him out when um, Bonnie Tyler, It's a Heartache, came on the radio. And I said, I hate this song. And I grabbed a rock and threw it and destroyed my radio. <laughs> and and, uh, and he uh, was scared <laughs> at that point. But I mean, a- in his defense, I feel like if you just started randomly raging out and smashing things with rocks, yeah, I think but, a lot of people would be off foot by that guy. I, I, yeah, but it's Buddy Tyler, it's a heartache. Come on, you know, I justified 100%. Something must be I like done. The song, but that must be stopped. See, again, once again, it's me who's the good guy on this. It's not always perceived that way. Perfect. I'm not attacking the Amish with rocks. It was not, I did not throw the rock at the Amish man. It was at the radio and through transformation. He doesn't know what a radio is. That's just part of your black magic spell. That's right. Casting devices. So I, 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 I slew, I slew the demon. And so there you go. It's gone. You know, so (laughs) in a way I should have been his hero, but it didn't work out that way. So Mike, I'm going to imagine you've had an interesting job or two. I've had some boring ones. I think that the two that 
are the most interesting to people. Uh, my first job, my first real job that I ever had, I was in grade school and I got an after school job working in a porn shop. That got shut down pretty quickly once my dad realized I got a job working in a porn shop. I want to back you up for a second. When you were in grade, when you were in grade school, yes, you answered a porn shop help wanted ad. No, so um, the little raising of me that was done as a youth uh, was was largely done at my grandparents' house, and my grandparents were near a small local college satellite center that they had, and there was a bookstore air quotes that opened up near there and of course and they had a sign up that said like books and comics and i was a huge as most kids <laughs> of my generation was really big into comic books so i was like oh a, a nearby comic book shop that i could just walk to so i walked over to it and it had a rack of comic books by the front door and then the rest of the bookstore which again I guess myself and my family included assumed this is close to the college is an actual bookstore it was a porn shop the bookstore. It was an adult bookstore, <laughs> but they did have a rack of comic books and it was an impressive selection of comic books. It wasn't like, so I don't know how it is uh, or how it was where you are, but for me, your options, if you went to the local drugstore or corner stores or anything like that, the comic book options were only the, the most popular mainstream comics. You might have the latest issue of X-Men or Spider-Man or something like that. If you wanted to delve any deeper into comic books than that, you had to go to a comic book store, which prior to the comic book bubble that came a while after that, there were not many comic book stores near me. So when this opened there, even though it was a porn shop, that rack of comics that they had by the front door was actually pretty diverse and a lot more diverse than what you could get local drugstores. So I was frequenting this porn shop buying comic books. And as far as my family knew or my dad knew when he would drop me off there, I was just going in and getting comic books. You also have to remember, too, that these were really comparatively different times to what they are now. Not this makes me sound incredibly old and feel very old saying that like things have changed a lot since I was a kid. I remember um, there was a local toy shop, like a little mom and pop toy store that sold cigarettes, which <laughs> seems like an unfathomable thing now that you could buy, you know your toys and a carton of cigarettes in the, in the same place. So it was just a really different time then. Although, you know, I didn't mention to my parents that it was a porn shop because I wanted to keep going there and, and getting the comic books that I needed to keep progressing in my collection. So I was there often and he had like a help wanted sign up the one day and he was like, Hey, you're here all the time. What if you stop in after school and like help me unload books and stuff? And I'll give you five bucks at the end of the week and a free comic book or whatever it was. So that's how I started working there. So the large sign that said Spanky's over the top of the store didn't tune anybody into what was going on here. <laughs> no, it just said books. Like okay. it didn't even have, which I think is almost creepier because <laughs> like it didn't even have a name. It just said books. Books. <laughs> ah, interesting. So I think that that's an interesting one because I was, you know, technically I worked at a porn shop when I was in grade school. And then um, the one that always really throws people is there was a brief period where I was a baker at a porn shop <laughs> at a porn shop. <laughs> so and it's because it's created this weird it was career. called buns, <laughs> <laughs> sticky buns, porn shop and bakery. Shop. bakery. There you go. <laughs> so I had I'm trying to think of of what led to it. I, I'd done a bunch of film projects back to back. And I, at the time I was so busy doing that. I didn't have like a normal nine to five day job. 
that kind of slowed down. And honestly, I needed a break from it because I made like three or four feature film projects back to back to back with no break in between them. I was exhausted and run down and I, I just needed some kind of normal day job for a few months to kind of be a normal person for a while again. I started looking around for a job and I was having a hard time finding a job. And somebody said, you know, this this grocery store is hiring and it was like flexible hours and it was part time. So I still had most of my time to myself. And I was like, oh, this is a good, you know, second job to kind of have get away, get out of the house for a little bit and make a couple bucks off of it. So I got there and the job was terrible. <laughs> I was originally hired to work in the money room there. And there was all kinds of problems with the management there and things like that. And the reason I was hired to work in the money room, most people don't know, most of my real life day job activities throughout the majority of my life is working in finances. So I was hired to work in the money room here and it was not working out. I was not getting along with management there. So a spot opened up in the bakery that believe it or not was far more money to work in the bakery. And uh, so I took, I decided I'd give it a shot. So I took a job working in the bakery and I do not like baking. It's an important part of this story. Um, I had never baked before, never baked anything. And I learned very quickly that I absolutely hate baking. Do not enjoy it whatsoever. However, they were very serious about baking there uh, because it was part of a suburban grocery store chain. And this was one of their flagship stores. So we actually did all the baking for like 20 locations or whatever it was. So they were very, they took it really seriously. So they had people like come out and train me as a baker, <laughs> even though I had no interest in actually doing this or pursuing this as any sort of a career. So I actually learned to bake very well. And I'm not saying it's like pat myself on the back or anything. I'm really good at baking because I was really well trained at baking. I did not stay there very long. I hated the work, like I said, but I did get very good at baking because I was, was well trained. So that is that is crossed over in my normal life, though, because now I, I do a lot of cooking and baking and making things from scratch because of that. So I still don't enjoy it, but I enjoy the the fruits of the labor, though. I hate baking, but it's always just like, you know, I'm thinking about what I need to buy food wise and different things like that. And I'm just like, if I made it from scratch, it would be better. <laughs> so that's what I usually end up doing. Well, and if time permits, you can maybe write one of your favorite recipes down and we can include it in the blog post. For the <laughs> Mike's wheat bread, whatever it might be, we can, we can do that. So since Jimmy's ditched that Vespa, uh, it's time to change and get a new mode of uh, transportation. So we moved to side three and uh, one of the, most archetypical who songs 515 so jimmy jimmy's now on a train heading down heading down to the beach to try and reconnect with some folks boy is this this is a train of a song a freight train of a song um you get that very cool again pete townsend intro and coda of and here it's a call back to cut my hair so you get the why should i care why should i care it's a very kind of soft and the guitar is kind of playing out. And then all of a sudden, 515 kind of comes roaring in, talking about being out of his brain on the train. And it's a killer song, a really, really fun song. Probably this, the most powerful song on this album. Uh, but, you know, it's right, you know, the real me, 515, in terms of kind of who rock songs, two, two masterful pieces of work. Really enjoyed this song. I uh, didn't know that it was a single until you mentioned it. We were discussing singles a few minutes ago before you took us off on that crazy tangent. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, Not like we got 17 songs to go through. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're just blazing through this thing. So we got plenty of time. But you really hit it with this is sort of the archetypical Who song. Like this is the kind of thing that I think of when I think of the Who. 
and I think you get a lot of diversity on this album, but songs like the real me in this are, are core who for me. Yeah, it, it it's yeah true blue who great song. It fits into the storyline. It wasn't like the shoehorn. Oh, we need to put a who song on here. It just carries everything forward and just worth the price of admission. And then we move. Uh, we do take a kind of a, a d- distinct shift. We'll get some more Daltry and Townsend singing together on Sea and Sand. Jimmy's now been kicked out of the house, and so he's kind of working working through those issues. A lot of tempo changes in it, which is pretty cool. There's also a callback to I've had enough uh, in there as well. Back to this kind of interweaving of the songs that we get the very kind of talent of this we get roger singing i'm the face if you want it uh, another thing is faces in mod culture where the the coolest guy was called the face ace the ace face or the the face is what uh what it was also high numbers was another thing that was a term of you're cooler than everybody else but face is a term of this is a happening person and so you get a little bit of that i'm the face which is another very very early i believe detour song as a matter of fact i really like the tempo changes as you mentioned i like the connective tissue that you get here between the songs which is you know a recurring thing throughout the album that we really enjoyed so you mentioned our protagonist getting kicked out of the house were you ever kicked out of your house kelly i know I'm going to expect you were. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, you know, Kelly, that's not nice. Yes, pulled but out, still. Pulled out on your Vespa. <laughs> See you later. I'm out of here. Jumped on my Vespa because, you know, I love the Vespa. <laughs> An hour later, you're at the end of the drive. I'm leaving. <laughs> I mean it. <laughs> I really hope there's not Vespa listeners out there. <laughs> Again, I love the Vespa. So. I'm on your guys' side. <laughs> so I'm sorry I derailed you there, Mike. Do you have any other points on on C and Sam? Um, no, I was just curious. Had you ever been kicked out of the house? Kelly? Yeah. Oh yeah, we need to hear how you've been. <laughs> so what, what was of of the several times you've been kicked out? Why don't you just share that? Because for for time purposes, let's just do the top one. So I, I guess the most epic one was for anyone who doesn't know, I I was an emancipated minor at 16, so I took my family to court when I was 16 to be declared legally an adult. So I kicked myself out when I turned 16. So that would be the most epic one, I guess. That's pretty impressive. And then back to Quarterfinia, <laughs> we, um, we move into, we had C and Sand. Now we get uh, Drowned. Drowned is, it's a great song. It, it's got a lot of punch to it. It's not your typical who song. It's really heavy on piano, which I love. Uh, another one where, uh, Roger just nails it in terms of the vocal delivery on it. And, you know, towards the end, he's like, I want to drown in cold water. And he just is just pounding it. And it's just a, it's a really rolling, powerful song uh, that kind of coming off of Sea and Sand, which is a lighter register, a pretty, pretty cool way to go. And I, and kind of a hidden treasure on this album. I think I really like Drowned. Really strong song that I really enjoyed. And you already touched on. It's a great counterpoint to what we just had. Speaking of counterpoints, <laughs> we'll move into Bellboy, which is Keith Moon's theme. Uh, and we actually do get to hear Keith Moon vocals on Bellboy. And so uh, the ace face of Jimmy's old gang, the guy that was the coolest guy when they used to go down and get into all their fights with the rockers, is still in the area, but is now employed as a bellboy at one of the fancy hotels on the seashore. And so it's kind of like the person he was holding up as being the coolest in the in the world is now kind of having to work at the beck and call the people that they felt they were better than all the, all the time before. And you get Keith Moon singing from the point of view of, of that individual in ways only that Keith Moon can sing, <laughs> which is really kind of fun. And so uh, it's a really kind of intriguing song, a lot of good rock to it. And then some storytelling with, with Keith Moon kind of talking about 
being a bellboy. The Keith Moon vocals would be the main thing that I would mention with it, but it, it brings up another tangent possibility here because I know you love it. The squaddies love it. We need to get the tangents in here. Have you ever worked in the service industry in any way, Kelly? I had several smart answers to that that I would pay a price for, so I'm not going to give any of those out. So, no. And a lot of that comes from, you know, the only thing that I dislike more than Vespas is people. And so that I've really never wanted to be in too many circumstances where um, I was needing to interact with a regular basis with other humans. So I've not done any really service industry stuff. It's always either been kind of manual labor or um, technology. I take it you have outside. No, of, no. Outside actually, of the, um, I'm, I'm kind of, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> See, Kelly thinking terrible things. I know. Again, I'm the good guy here. I, I feel like that's not positively portrayed. We're, we're about to, we're about, I mean, you, you, you worked in your gash wagon a little earlier. <laughs> you know, don't, let's, let's not lose sight of that. <laughs> I mean, you just said it too. I'm aware. I'm aware I'll have to edit it out. So, but I got some more editing to do here in a second. So it's okay. <laughs> um, never worked in a service industry job. I guess the closest thing would be when I was working in the bakery, although it wasn't like, it wasn't a retail thing. Like you couldn't come up to the bakery and like make orders, but people thought you could. So there was a lot of dealing with people who, who didn't comprehend that we were, you know, if, if I was making donuts, I wasn't making like a dozen donuts for them. I was making a thousand donuts for like 20 different locations and didn't really have the time or patience to deal with them. So I, I definitely respect people who, who work service industry type jobs. Absolutely. I don't think I could do it personally. No, it, t- it takes a special breed to be able to, because, you know, a lot of times you'll, cut across people that are human beings and kind and nice and flexible. But a lot of times there are other people out there too, that you have to, you're kind of trapped in having to be at their service. And it's, it'd be tough because it'd be really tough. I can't imagine. So in, in my normal everyday jobs that are like I'd mentioned are typically in, in more finance related roles. I do have to deal with clients and customers and things like that. And when, you know, just, just that, Part of it can be exhausting at times and you're, you're not always dealing with people who are happy or dealing with people on their best days and things like that. So the idea of working in the service field and having to do that all of the time and that be the focal point of your job, it's something that I'm not cut out for. I couldn't do it. Yeah, I'm super impressed by the people who can and do a great job at it. So we move to the final side, side four, only three tracks on on this and the first track is dr jimmy and mr jim where dr jimmy is actually the name of the song but it's dr jimmy and mr jim so it's a bit of the jekyll and hyde of pills were very popular amongst the the mods that's another thing that's referenced in kind of multiple points earlier in the album and so jimmy's kind of singing about the fact that dr jimmy and mr jim the the evil side comes he only comes out when i drink my gin when he's on pills he's 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 mellow he's cool he drinks his gin He's not such a good guy. He's a pretty bad guy. In fact, and I know probably Mike's entire uh, goal on uh, us doing these is to eventually have me drop an, an F-bomb. So I will, I will on my own, <laughs> without being forced to it by Mike. So I will be uh, happy to accommodate him finally on that. Because they really drive this home and Roger's vocal deliveries are, are really good. He's kind of shouting at the end about how he's in his Dr. Jimmy mode. And it's this series of lines that says, you say she's a virgin. And he's just growling this out. He goes, you say she's a virgin. Well, I'm going to be the first in 
her fellow's going to kill me. Oh, fucking will he? And it's just pounding through there. And it's just the way Roger delivers, it's amazing. And to kind of get that kind of good and bad in there. So there's my present to you, Mike. Happy? <laughs> I mean, obviously I'm offended. I'm sorry. Yeah, my apologies. <laughs> I was I was pretty taken aback when I was listening to this. And there was some some coarse language like that in the songs. I would never subject you to music that never. had this, this sort of explicit material in it, Kelly. Never. <laughs> never. And then not only did you just repeat the line, but you've already said gash wagon as well. I, I don't even know what kind of show I'm on anymore. Yeah, that's right. I've said it half as much as you have. <laughs> just, to, just to be. <laughs> we want to do distribution. <laughs> so are you a gin drinker, Kelly? So I just heard, are you gingering Kurt Kelly? So I don't think that was your question. <laughs> no, let's go with that one. Kelly. Am I ginger? Are you gingering Kurt Kelly? It's like, like a slang term. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Let's roll with that. Cause I don't know where that's going to go. No, I'm yeah. not gingering Mike. Are you gingering? <laughs> I haven't gingered since oh, way back in the day. No. Are you a gin drinker, sir? Oh, that makes a lot more sense as a question. I'm not. I whiskey uh, in terms of spirits goes. Whiskey is uh, always always my favorite from there. Don't mind vodka on occasion, but I've never been a big gin fan. Gin and tonic, okay, but uh, not a big one. How does it fall in your pantheon of alcohol, Mike? Primarily a whiskey drinker. Give me a fifth of whiskey and then another couple of fifths of whiskey to split with my friends. And uh, I'm usually a pretty happy guy getting up in the morning. That's how you get the day started, by the way. <laughs> um, one thing I've taken to doing, though, which nobody is happy with except for me, when we go out and, or when we're going to have a, a big night or we're doing a show or we're doing whatever it's going to be, I tend to make everybody do a shot of gin with me. Just straight gin, do a shot of it. And uh, I don't... I It's blurry now how this exactly got started i think it was because uh i was at a wedding years ago and i was never really a gin drinker i i had gin before i think i'd had a gin or tonic or two never really a gin drinker though i was at a wedding and we were taking turns going up and getting the drinks for our for our group sort of at our table and all that and uh a friend of mine went up and it was his turn to get the drinks and he got everybody some weird variation of what they asked for. So like if you had asked for a Jack and Coke, you got a vodka and Coke or something like it was some weird variation on what you got there. So when I was going up to get the drinks, he had asked for just a glass of water. So I got him a glass of gin. <laughs> like you do as one would do. So he did not notice what you would think. Cause there's that strong like juniper berry smell to gin and you know lighter fluid <laughs> that you can and uh he did not notice because he'd already had a few drinks and you know he was in the middle of conversation and everything so he just kind of picked it up off of the table downed it really quickly <laughs> a rocks glass just filled with gin so he had a very strong reaction <laughs> to that i would think so <laughs> yeah and especially because he he was not braced for it in any way so somehow from that it's turned to every time there's a group of us and we're going to be doing anything. Uh, the first thing is a shot of gin. And for me personally, I feel like it prepares me for what's coming next. Like if I can get through the shot of gin, just straight gin, I'm ready for whatever's coming next. That's an interesting life path you have chosen, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it hardens me for what's ahead. So you did mention whiskey and I know we're getting off another tangent here. Just a bit. Yeah. <laughs> just, what kind of whiskey do you drink, sir? 
Uh, so Maker's Mark is uh, an all-time favorite. When volume's important, Canadian Mist, <laughs> given the very low price point to volume there. So uh, there are not too many times where volume is critical to me. So when when it's for uh, enjoyment, Maker's Mark is always my go-to. You have a preference? So I, I do. Maker's Mark is good. Four Roses is one that was introduced to me more recently that I do enjoy. There's a few others. I really like Gentleman Jack. Have you had that? I have not. So I don't know if you're a Jack Daniels guy at all. Um, I used don't to drink Jack Daniels. I'm sorry. So don't mind Jack. Uh, yeah, I used to drink a lot of Jack Daniels. And then when I was introduced to Gentleman Jack, now I kind of can't go back to regular Jack Daniels. It's just so much smoother. It, it tastes, there's so much more flavor to it. It's, it's, it's for anyone who doesn't know, it's like the, the top shelf version of Jack Daniels. It's a very different looking bottle. If you ever see it in a liquor store, it's worth picking up though. It's worth the extra money that you're going to put out for it. It's just a really good, like everyday sort of whiskey. I, I have, I don't want to say I, a vast collection of alcohol or anything like that, but like whenever I'm out somewhere and I see something that looks like it'd be interesting or I want to try, I do pick it up. And then it usually, you know, doesn't last particularly long depending on who's over, but like the regular go-to whiskey when people are coming over is usually gentleman Jack. It's the Vespa of whiskeys. <laughs> So we move going back to Quadrophenia, uh, only two songs <laughs> left, gang. Uh, we get uh, the second uh, lengthy instru- instrumental, also clocking in at over six minutes, The Rock. And so storyline, Jimmy's back. He's going to the beach. His heroes will kind of let him down. He's really kind of distraught. And he's basically at the at the beach, kind of swimming out to an, a rock outcropping. And this instrumental is just kind of pulling in his whole journey. Very similar. So it's the same Legos as Quadrophenia. A lot of the same pieces there, all kind of executed a little bit differently and put together in a much different way. So I really didn't think there could be anything as good as Quadrophenia as an instrumental on this, but the rock is its equal. I think they're, they, they're both, they both stand up really, really well. Always a tremendous listen, particularly with headphones on. And so it's another, for me, very strong instrumental as we begin to wind down Quadrophenia. So as much as I really enjoyed the vocals on this record, this was another instrumental was also a welcome addition to this. I enjoyed the first one. I thought it was interesting how it came so soon. And then this one, you know, right before the end. And like you said, it does it does bring a lot of the elements from Quadrophenia into it. Just to draw another parallel to Nine Inch Nails, not in exactly the same way, but... You know, you did see that where there was not just recurring motifs between songs, but there was a song that sort of palette swapped the bulk of the music between them. And and this kind of does the same thing, but to a different degree and and with a different effect in the end. Yeah, I could definitely see that parallel. Absolutely. And then we bring it to close with Pete's theme, Love Rain Over Me. Now, we've heard snippets of this through the whole album. And now we get the, the full enchilada here. Powerful, powerful song. It builds. It becomes more driving. I think if you talk to kind of hardcore Who fans, a lot of folks, I assume, would go Bob O'Reilly is the ultimate combination of excellent Pete Townsend writing and Roger Daltrey singing uh, as a, a combined to kind of take it to that next level. And I'd agree that that's absolutely up there. But I think Love Rain Over Me might actually be better in terms of Pete writes his tremendous song it's beautiful it's complex it builds and then roger just nails it with the vocals and so we're left a little bit to we don't know exactly jimmy's fate but he seems to have come to peace uh at some point in time here at the at the end of end of it here but it's a super powerful song a perfect ending to the album it makes sense you don't it's the right move in my opinion and 
a, just a tremendous song and a great way to end the album. Another song that I was very familiar with. Uh, this is another song, you know, like the real me that I've heard many, many times and, you know, didn't really have the context for it having not listened to this album front to back before so it was good to to sort of get the full picture of it but a song that i really really enjoy you mentioned bob o'reilly another obviously really well-known who song i don't know how much i would get into covers of different things and while i've never that i'm off the top of my head i don't think i've heard a cover of this it is interesting listening to covers of the who i don't know how much you've ever delved into that but some of it is just really all over the place so it's interesting to kind of hear because i always think of a really particular driving rock sound as the who sound so hearing covers that are kind of all over the place is an interesting spin on that but then listening to this album front to back i feel like the who themselves went in so many different directions on this but it still created this really enjoyable listenable cohesive piece of artwork yeah it's really hard given the unique skill set of these four individuals together and what they they bring and how well they all fit together and play off of each other for someone to try and cover one of something that they've performed and do it in a way that matches up is a, a really tall order because as the squaddies well know, we are quite the Alice Cooper fans uh, here, Mike and I. And Alice, on on some of his encores in the past, when he was kind of going through all of his dead friends and and playing different songs, and he and Keith Moon were, were good buddies. Uh, he does My Generation. And certainly, if you're talking about somebody who can kind of bring driving rock, it's Alice Cooper. And it's a good version of My Generation, but, but the Who version's better. The best Who cover that I would throw out there, and they've covered... That I'm aware of two Who songs. Guns N' Roses does a really, really impressive version of Bob O'Reilly. That could be interesting to hear. They've also covered The Seeker. The Seeker is more or less a straightforward approach to the cover, though, whereas Bob O'Reilly is not. And that's what makes it interesting. Hmm. I have not heard that. I'll have to do that. We might even throw that in on the blog post just as bonus content for folks. All right. So over the past several days we've recorded, we'll conversation around 30, no, 40. 40 songs. So so well done, sir. Minimal tangents. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that. Couple of bad words. Couple of bad words. We've done worse on tangents, I'd say. So I guess I'll give us that. But uh, that's good. Mike and I are still plotting through what some of our next content will be. But I think we're going to maybe go into some interesting territory around some playlists, maybe. And if we do those, we'll make those available on the YouTube channel, which again, you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash K-E-L-L-Y-T-H-U-L. And And I think uh, another thing the squaddies could do is throw in a truth question or a potential dare for our truth or dare episode 100. Yeah, I wouldn't really wouldn't worry about that. I'd focus on happening. Focus on subscribing, folks. Keep eyes on the prize. Let's do that on that note before (laughs) another tangent or more bad words come out of my filthy mouth. I'm going to say thanks for listening, everybody. And I'm going to say gash wagon. Of course you are. Stop the broadcast.